you can imagine just how unruly it is to go from main document to sublink to maybe back to the main document, perhaps to another sublink. As users, I believe at least we're entitled to understanding the four corners of a single document that may govern my relationship with these various platforms, particularly when they involve the surrendering of my intellectual property rights and, for that matter, an intrusion into my privacy. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. You're kidding me. Get out of here. No, I'm not kidding you. That's really in your EULA, and that's what we're about to investigate. This is Mark Miller, and I'm not a lawyer. But I am curious as to what I've committed to when I press the accept button on the app I just downloaded. Even though I'm not a lawyer? Hey, my friend Joel is. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I find the issues we talk about on this podcast to be interesting. But under no means am I your lawyer. At least not yet. Joel and I are going to explore popular app and site EULAs. We want to determine the legal obligations you're agreeing to when you set up an account on, say, YouTube or TikTok or one of the new chat engines. It's kind of geeky, I know, but we're going to have some fun with it. So stay with us. We're choosing to talk about Slack because virtually every technology company is using Slack. It's ubiquitous. It's almost like de facto standard for communication. One of the things that I found, and maybe you appreciated this too, is when I went through the documentation, which is just pages and addendums, whatever, but it's not legalese. It's not legal jargon, which I very much appreciate First of all, let's talk about the manner in which it's drafted. To their credit, a lot of it is very much in plain speak. Sometimes when you're going to talk about the exclusive jurisdiction in which a litigation can arise, it's going to get a little legalese. That's just the nature of the business. But to its credit, it's very much written in plain speak, and I think it's digestible. It suffers from, I think, of this kind of incorporated by reference herein, and then those incorporations then leading back to no less than, I counted five separate agreements. Got them listed here, yes. Yeah, that they set out in separate hyperlinks. The more I read these, and I joke about them, there's something here from a legislative perspective that needs to be addressed. Because you can imagine just how unruly it is to go from main document to sublink, to maybe back to the main document, perhaps to another sublink, as users, I believe at least we're entitled to understanding the four corners of a single document that may govern my relationship with these various platforms, particularly when they involve the surrendering of my intellectual property rights and, for that matter, an intrusion into my privacy. I understand that that's the trade-off for using these platforms, and I'm willing to play with you. But tell me in an understandable, coherent fashion what the terms of engagement are. That's all I'm asking. One of the, the terms that I came up with to try to get a picture of what's going on, I'm going to start calling this, it's fractal 
documentation. <laughs> Fractal <laughs> documentation. That's nice. And it does seem. Should I, should I change my last name to Mandelbrot? <laughs> <laughs> Fractal documentation defined as each branch of a document leads to at least two, if not more, branches of extension of that document. It's in some instances, even with Slack, where we complimented them on clarity. When you go to something like their privacy policy, and there are 15 extended individual sections in the privacy policy, and within those are links, you start to get the idea of how fractal this thing is. I don't know enough about fractal geometry to know that it one necessarily leads to two, but I do get it as a concept. I think it's a great way to describe them, at least in my limited understanding of fractal geometry. So good on you, Mark. I'm going to start here with this because I want to read what they said when they said, okay, first things first. They actually say that in their documentation. These user terms are legally binding. <laughs> okay. If you can get through all this stuff, I guess it's legally binding. But I'll come back to the same point that you and I talk about in every show. If it's not possible, to consume this because of the quantity and how it is laid out, how much of this is legally binding? I don't think volume can ever be an excuse for a lack of enforceability. You can't say there was too much. Or you can say it, I just don't think it's going to carry the day. I think the better argument, if I were a plaintiff's lawyer, as I sometimes am, at least as it relates to these policies, is there is not a clear expression that allows me as a participant on these platforms to understand that which is being asked of me. Slack, very interestingly, is saying, you, user, are essentially the guest of the customer. And the customer, so says Slack, is the one and only entity with whom we as a company are contracting. So to put it a little differently, if you're a user and you've been invited to someone's Slack channel, as we all have, you have no rights vis-a-vis -vis Slack, the entity. You, so says Slack, your sole remedy is against the customer for all things, including a misuse of your data. We are just essentially the vehicle by which you may be transmitting that data, but we don't have any skin in the game, so says Slack. I'm making a couple of assumptions there. I'm going to assume as a user of these platforms, and to be distinguished from a customer, at least with respect to the way Slack is articulated the relationship is that I'm presumably going to take issue with something that they're doing with my data. My argument would be that notwithstanding Slack's efforts to disclaim liability and say at the end of the day that any disagreement between me as a user and my customer host, I could imagine, I'm sure there are crafty plaintiff's lawyers out there that will do this if they haven't done so already that will make the argument that no, Slack knew or should have known of the customer's use of my data or the manner in which it was being used or misused 
and therefore may not disclaim liability as it attempts to do in its user terms of service. We've talked about that. The way Slack divides and conquers between customer and user, I thought was really interesting. By the way, this plays out throughout the agreement. You know, if someone is now going to the agreement after this discussion, and we look at limitation of liability, it says as much. The first sentence reads in relevant part, if we believe that there's a violation of the contract, user terms, the acceptable use policy, or any of our other policies that can simply be remedied by customers' removal of certain customer data or taking other action, we will, in most cases, ask customer to take action rather than intervene. And that just underscores its entire business model, which, by the way, is consistent with every other platform we've looked at. You talk about Amazon and brand registry or something like that. Amazon takes the position, if there is a dispute as between two purported trademark holders, we're out of it. Along those lines, talking, differentiating customer types, one of the things that they say, and this isn't a headline, this is not intended for consumer purposes. That is a cover your ass statement because they follow that with, Slack is a workplace tool intended for use by businesses and organizations and not for consumer purposes. The reason they define consumer, to the maximum extent permitted by law, you are hereby acknowledged and agree that consumer laws do not apply. Except where they do, of course, and Slack can't opt out of it. The example they give is Australia. The Competition and Consumer Act of 2010 precludes an entity position like Slack, namely, I'm assuming, any entity, including those on the internet, from opting out of that. Therefore, there is a kind of mandatory consumer protection law that applies. Slack has the ability to add plugins that will hook you up to a Trello board. It has things that you can hook up to Zendesk, so you could actually be running your issue tracking system through Slack. How far do these terms of agreement go when you're using plugins, again, fractally, to reach out to other systems? We're going to spitball this thing. So I'm going to hook it up to Zendesk, which has all of my issues, my tracking issues of things that are going wrong, the stuff that I'm working on. When I'm using Slack, to actually expose those issues within Slack that are coming from Zendesk. At what point do I cross the boundary to say, now you're in Zendesk's terms of agreement. This has nothing to do with us. That's the dilemma I see with having an extended use of plugins that pull in your whole system of management and just integrate it using Slack as a dashboard. Not exactly my wheelhouse, but I think from a data privacy perspective, I find that really interesting. Zendesk is actually a perfect example because I have some clients that are running their customer service quality assurance management through Zendesk. So to your point, you phrased it beautifully. Where does the Zendesk begin and the Slack end or vice versa? And as we both know, the more portals you have, the more opportunity you give to bad guys to infiltrate your system and harvest data that they shouldn't be touching. It's a really interesting perspective because it gives rise just off the top of my head to a couple of different issues. Number one is, what is a cybersecurity plan 
that a company similarly positioned like the client I just described has in place for something like that. We know that if they're not already law, there's certainly good practices that there's a notification requirement. I need to now notify the customer. But my understanding is, regardless of whether or not the data breach that's verified, I know today implicates my client's data. Good corporate practice suggests in 2023 that I should nevertheless be proactive about it and advise my client that there is a potential, a mere potential for the unauthorized access of their data. The other thing that this raises from a lawyer's perspective, at least mine, is what does this mean for your cybersecurity insurance? Certainly any company worth their salt these days has a cybersecurity policy that is designed to safeguard against the kinds of breaches we're talking about. The question becomes, though, is your carrier, or is even your broker, but your carrier, aware of all of these various data entry points we're talking about? The synapse, if you will, between Slack and Zendesk in the manner in which you've described it. I have been involved in procuring cybersecurity insurance, and there's a whole host of disclosures that has to go on. But if that's constantly changing at the speed of light in terms of, to your example, you're adding plugins on day one and you've got something in the hopper on Monday, you're adding something on Friday, are you keeping up with your cybersecurity disclosure requirements to your carrier? Or are you, unfortunately, essentially eviscerating your policy because either you're going beyond the scope of the policy or you're not keeping them updated? Both of which, by the way, would be a position for your carrier to turn around and say, Sorry to hear that, but we're not covering you. So that million dollars that you just spent on a premium, sorry, it's money down the drain. I want to roll back a little bit to customer responsibility. Customer responsibility, that's a big heading in there. And it says, you agree that it is solely the customer's responsibility to inform you and any authorized users of any relevant customer policies and practices, blah, blah, blah. What they're saying at that point, I think, is what you just said, which is Slack is saying, got nothing to do with me. The customer is responsible to inform everybody that's using their channel. That's right. And I had to actually read that provision a few times because I wanted to, I was surprised by it. And not because it does anything wrong or anything, but because it, as I said, it shifts the entire burden really on the use and collection of data back to the customer and takes it away from the platform. It's funny, the perception though, Joel, is that if I'm using Slack myself, I think of myself as the customer. Yeah, exactly. Of course. So do I. So do I. Notwithstanding the fact that you are running a channel and you might invite me, that doesn't, in my mind, either as a consumer, alter the framework in terms of my understanding of, like, I I think, frankly, we're just a couple of kids hanging out and we're both using Slack. Yes, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be part of the conversation, but I don't appreciate, or certainly not instinctively, that there's a legal difference in terms of your relationship with the platform and my relationship with the platform, which, by the way, as a user, right? As we go down this daisy chain, as a user, because I'm quote unquote at the mercy of your invite, 
In order to participate on Slack, I have to sign up through the Slack interface, and Slack has all my information in order to allow me to access the channel I was invited to. Or put differently, I have to accept Slack's terms of service to participate in which they are then saying, by virtue of me accepting their terms, that <laughs> your only recourse at the end of the day is to the guy that or gal who invited you. I understand why you say you disagree with it. It's certainly interesting. Can't say that there's anything wrong with it, other than it's unusual. It, it's not the way I've ever read the dynamic between parties before. And the kind of bifurcation that exists between customer and user in the agreement is really an interesting one. And it creates burdens and responsibilities that I'm sure, as we've often said on the show, that users of the platform are entirely unaware of. No doubt because they haven't read it. But again, with respect to those laypersons, even if they did read it, wouldn't appreciate those distinctions. I want to clarify that Slack is different than the other apps that you and I have been talking about in other shows. Slack is actually for business. It's stated as much. This is for businesses to manage communication. If you're going to be using this for business, I would expect that you would have legal look at this before you allowed your company or organization to use it. As opposed to, if this is an app that I'm putting on my phone, then the onus is on me to understand what's going on. I'm thinking that because this is business software, there might be a much more likelihood of it actually being read and analyzed the way you and I are doing it because it's business-related and going to hold business data. I think you're right. I think those businesses that are savvy enough before they put it on their systems are going to, if for no other reason, as I mentioned, to make sure that it dovetails with their cyber insurance policy or their head of whatever you want to call it that is in charge of these kinds of things, new product development, whatever, are aware that there are implications in signing this up. I don't know. I don't know. Is general counsel even at a, a thousand person business? Looking this over, probably not. My guess is it falls to IT in a lot of these sort of mid-get oh. companies. IT is going to say, hey, here's something that they may have fallen in love with, right? It's a tweak on Teams. They like the interface better. To your point, it's got more functionality. They might be pushing it. And the next thing you know, the company is rolling it out. And depending on the background of general counsel, which certainly there was a time I'm not so sure this is the case now, but there was a time maybe even five or 10 years ago where if you're general counsel at a mid-sized company, you're going to be far more, I suspect, you're going to be far more in tune to employment, and labor issues as it relates to regulatory work. You may not be so savvy when it comes to the, I guess, the repercussions, the technical repercussions and the data breach issues that may arise from uh, essentially bringing this tool on board. It's a problem with any company when you're rolling out enterprise software that the legal aspect of it, if you're using it for business, I would look much more closely at it than I would if it was for an app. 
in the acceptable use document, they have 22 bullet points of things you cannot do. This is one of the things that got you and I started here is when you have a litany like this, when you have so many caveats, when you have so many things that are outlined like this, at what point does the user's eyes glaze over and say, screw it, I'm just going to hit the accept button? <laughs> There's a really interesting, and it's a little legally, it's a little legalese and it's a little nerdy. But when I read these, uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. And of course, they're not numbered, right? So they become difficult to reference. I noticed that bullets. right away. Yes, yes. Three, four, five. I look at five. It says, you may not attempt to reverse engineer, decompile, hack, disable, which is your standard kind of confidentiality, non-disclosure stuff. Under the trade secrets law in this country, there's nothing wrong with reverse engineering something. That's exactly why we bake it into the contract is because the contract and the provisions in the contract are going to restrict you more than our common law otherwise would. But what's interesting is the one that's two more down, which reads in its entirety, access the services in order to build a similar or competitive product or service or copy any ideas, features, functions, or graphics of the services. It's the first part of it I'm troubled by. That's where I come to you as a lawyer and say, is this really enforceable? That specific part. There's two competing interests, right? It has to be broad enough that it would presumably capture everything that Slack wants to basically put in that bucket. Because if it's too narrow, then the crafty lawyer like myself is going to say, get out of here. It falls outside the scope of what you were trying to limit. The problem is, you can imagine this, that if I'm creating a another tool that tangentially is similar or competitive, do you see how broad that is within the context of this? That could conceivably be anything. Our contracts also have to be specific. It has to be very clear as to what's allowed or what's not allowed. And what I found very interesting here is it's basically saying, Slack is saying, you shall not use our widget to build a better widget. If Slack were to take the position that provision is somehow enforceable, yeah, I'd have a lot of issues with it. And I can imagine there being a number of arguments that could be made to suggest that that's unenforceable, not the least of which is, and again, there's a long way to, you'd have to prove this, okay, and the devil's in the details, but not the least of which is, it is an anti-competitive argument that arguably runs afoul of our antitrust laws. Now, to establish an antitrust claim, there's lots of things we'd have to establish as a would-be plaintiff, including that Slack has, quote-unquote, a definable market, that it has exclusivity or dominance in that market, all kinds of like legalese things we'd have to prove. But the language is troubling and I think sets them up for more trouble than I think the provision is worth. <laughs> we can actually refer back to something that probably happened about 10 years ago when Amazon tried to protect the functionality of one-click. They said, this is something that we created a one-click buying mechanism, and somebody copied the essence of the functionality, not by using Amazon's code or anything, but just saying, hey, that's a damn good idea. Let me do something like that on my site. And Amazon, no, we own one-click. 
I think it is part and parcel of a movement that has been occurring over the last 10 or 15 years in the patent space where method patents or business method patents that were once upon a time handed out as easily as business cards at a cocktail party, particularly as it relates to software, are almost non-existent now. The, the American Invention Act, which is an outgrowth of a couple of Supreme Court decisions, there was a very famous decision, the Alice decision, which basically said at the end of the day, and I'm really, I'm not doing this justice, but said, if you have a software application that does not result in the better performance of hardware, it is not amenable to patent protection anymore, period. Now you have the other side say, wait a second, that goes way too far. Software is so nuanced. You're basically cutting off the head of development in this country. You're not supporting entrepreneurs. We're really doing ourselves a disservice. And that tension has consistently played out, certainly in some of the writings and in the court materials. But it's pretty clear now that, to your point exactly, where you have an Amazon that is trying to lay exclusive claim to one button clicking, so to speak, right? Like it's an image and it says buy now and you click and then it's all processed. That's dead as a protectable patent in this country. And I think rightly so, although there are no doubt exceptions to that. And I could be convinced that Alice maybe has gone too far. And I'm sometimes often reminded about that when clients come to me and say, I've got this concept or I've got the software. Is it protectable? Is it amenable to patent protection? And 99.% of the time, the answer is no, because it does not directly impact or otherwise enhance the hardware. In general... How do you feel about the Slack agreement compared to the other ones we've looked at so far? The Slack agreement is interesting because, as I said earlier, it creates obligations on the part of users and customers. It also bifurcates the relationship between the invitor and the invitee. As someone using Slack who's not operating a channel, but rather is a participant in a channel, their user terms are worth looking at so that you understand that your sole recourse is any, including if you dive into all of the sublinks that are layered in that agreement, is with the customer, meaning you're the person who invited you to the channel. So let's do a thumbs up, thumbs down for Slack terms of agreement. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Neutral. I'm going to go sideways. <laughs> to the extent that I'm being difficult. I had to go sideways. There are things to celebrate, but I also think there are things that if I was general counsel to Slack and I'm putting these things together, I'd want to spend a bit more time defining and refining. I want to remind people that you're a lawyer, but you are not their lawyer. <laughs> At least not yet. That's our investigation for today. If you've got questions or comments, go to the show page, whatsinmyula.com. You'll also find links and resources there that will put you in touch with Joel. You're kidding me. That's in my Eula is a weekly production of The Sourced Network, where you'll find our growing list of podcasts, including It's 505, the daily cybersecurity and open source news, Real Technologists with host Trace Bannon and a bomb with host DJ Schleen. 
Special thanks today to Katie, that's with a D, Katie, that's with a T, Edwin and Tracy for the awesome voiceover talent. Music today is provided by Hashout at Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. final word from Joel. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I find the issues we talk about on this podcast to be interesting, but under no means am I your lawyer. At least not yet. If you're interested in having me become your lawyer or otherwise want to talk about some of these issues, you can. You can reach me at my email, which is available in the transcript of this podcast.